0: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. June 15th, 2023, the What Could Judge Cannon Do edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Washington, D.C., back from Canada. Thank goodness. In... New Haven, Connecticut, Emily Bazelon of New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And a somewhat beleaguered, but not bowed, John Dickerson of CBS Primetime in New York City. Hello, John.
1: Hi, David. Hello, Emily.
0: This week on the Gabfest, Trump is arraigned in Florida. What is going to happen next? How could Judge Cannon shape this case? How will the case warp the Republican primary and the Republican Party? Then, Cop City we will try to understand the huge controversies over Atlanta's plan to build a new police training facility in a forest. And then Eat, Pray, Love author Elizabeth Gilbert, delayed publication of her forthcoming novel, which is set in Stalin's Soviet Union, amid criticism that she shouldn't be writing about Russia at a time when it's brutally invading Ukraine. We'll talk about when geopolitics should decide, should shape should determine what art is made and what artists may perform. Plus, of course we'll have cocktail chatter and a reminder that we have a live show coming up here in DC. Please join us on Wednesday, June 28th at 6th and I 6th and I historic synagogue at 730 PM slate.com slash gabfest live for tickets. We'd love to see you. It's going to be a really fun night. Uh, it's a great venue and, um, I do think there are news events that we are likely to be talking about. It does seem like this is a pretty newsy time. So you'll get lots of insight from John and Emily and words from me as well. Slate.com slash GapFest live Wednesday, June 28th.
2: With the Lucky land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: not guilty to 37 federal charges leveled against him by special counsel, Jack Smith in a Florida courtroom before a magistrate judge. Then he went out and immediately campaigned against the charges as a political assault and smeared Smith uh, as well. What is going to happen next legally, Emily At at what cadence and most importantly, how much of what happens next is determined by judge cannon.
4: I mean, pretty much everything is determined by Judge Cannon because now she gets to decide the pace of ruling on um, pre-trial motions and all the kinds of what happens next questions. Presumably, unless something happens, she recuses herself for some reason, um, the case goes elsewhere. Okay. You know, pre-trial motions, there's lots to mine here. There are these questions about what kinds of evidence the government can introduce, you know, the ruling that Judge Howell made in Washington to Pierce attorney-client privilege and allow uh, Trump's lawyer, Evan Corcoran, allow his notes that seems to have been pretty damning important evidence. Will Corcoran testify? Will Judge Howell's ruling hold up now that we're in this different courtroom in Florida? Then there are all these questions about the level of secrecy of the documents that are at issue in the case. And I expect that Trump's lawyers will argue that the government has to talk about those documents publicly in a way that the government will then say, wait a second, there are all these national securities at issue here. We don't want to talk about these things publicly. And it's imaginable that there could be a ruling where the government would have to drop some of that evidence from the case. Um, The third thing I'm watching really closely is, is Walt Nauda, the second defendant in this case, who so far is sticking to Trump's side. But it seems pretty clear that he was charged, because he did wrong things, like makes false statements according to the indictment, but also one imagines the government is ho- going is hoping that he will turn on Trump. And so watching that dynamic play out in the next weeks and months is also going to be really interesting, I think.
0: John, you have been bathing in this, marinating in it, uh, sweating Trump charges out your pores. Uh, what do you make of his response so far to the charges and how he's campaigned on it?
1: Well, um, it's predictable. And if you read Maggie Haberman's book, it goes all the way back to the very initiating stages of Donald Trump's life in the world, which is to resist, deny, attack the system, um, create diversions. I think the modification he's made as a presidential figure is to do Two things to turn his personal grievance into a collective grievance. You know, as he says, if they come for me, they're coming for you. Um, uh, The general population's difficulties with holding on to nuclear secrets in their uh, bathroom with a chandelier is a pretty narrow case for the general public. But nevertheless, he is uh, making the case that um, this is somehow connected to his voters and they are buying it. Um, But it's not just the most extreme fans of the former president, but it's within the entire Republican ranks. They see this um, as a politically motivated prosecution, which we can talk about the dangers of that later. But um, the benefit of that for him is that in politics that is devoted or that is driven largely by negative partisanship, which is um, I may or may not like my guy a lot, but I really hate the other team. It frames it. If you might be a person who's uh, inclined to not think so many great things about former president trump it frames it in the context of the evil of the other side and so that has captured the republican party according to um polls and the secondary thing that that does is that if in fact politics is a fight against another team which is to say the democrats and the biden administration that is so low that they would use the justice department to throw their enemies in jail like a third world dictator then in a competition like that you need somebody who is you know, a norm breaking, um, uh, s- sort of, uh, rule breaking fellow and what candidate running is more practiced at breaking rules and being, you know, a junkyard dog than Donald Trump. So it's not just a rallying around him on the, on the grievance and affection front, but it almost could, the way Trump is doing it and the way his party is helping him, it creates the conditions for, uh, his particular set of attributes to be advantaged by this drama.
0: That was so depressing. That was so depressing and gloomy. And it was, that was even more depressing than I thought you would. It gets worse.
1: What's the worst? Well, the worst is that it causes people who, um, who, who, you know, in the standard of the office, you want people who use their brains and who evaluate evidence and who have a sense of the obligation of the public trust and who, I mean, they're not perfect. They're politicians, right? But but the reason you hold all of these standards that we all fall short of, but the politicians also fall short of, but the reason you keep the standards is you collectively agree that we kind of all gotta got to kind of try and keep these standards. And despite the number of times we fall, the reset, the default position is always trying to to act with character, to act according to a basic set of, um, norms and rules and defending former president Trump has caused many of them to go totally mad. I mean, you have the speaker of the house who's one of the few people in Congress who has access to the very highest intelligence, who every time he touches that intelligence has to go through a certain set of protocols, nevertheless, making the argument that because the bathroom door locks at Mar-a-Lago, that that somehow, um, is, um, exculpatory evidence uh, in in this case. I mean, it, that's just not on the same um, planet as the set of standards you'd want from the most powerful person in Congress when talking about the kinds of material that's alleged here. You have the um, Republican Majority Leader, Steve Scalise, saying, well, if this was Joe Smith, it wouldn't be happening to him. Well, no, of course. People have been thrown in jail um, for... Holding on to these kinds of documents. And that's not even just what's alleged. It's not just the holding on to the documents. It's the it's the active acts of obstruction. So you're saying if Joe Smith had hundreds of the highest sensitivity level documents and then gave the finger to the Justice Department repeatedly, that the Justice Department would be like, oh no, never mind. It's it's an argument outside of all the boundaries. And so when you have a political system in which people are encouraged to make those kinds of arguments, and then are encouraged to make them so often, that becomes their default position, not let's use our reason, but let's throw up a bunch of random responses to things that are largely indefensible, or let's not be um, intellectually honest. And if everybody gets practiced in that, that becomes the way they respond to things. It then creates a market for the next set of people who want to rise up in this atmosphere so that people come along who aren't practiced in using argumentation and reason to evaluate the world, but they're practiced in essentially creating diversions and madness. uh, And that only leads to more madness.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's clear that what's happened to the Republican Party is that the Republican Party is now has sort of two types of people in it. One is the people who I'm talking about leadership. I'm not, there are lots of people who are everyday Republican voters who are there for a variety of different reasons that, that are not we don't need to get into, but Republican politicians are either like grifters themselves who have recognized that this is a party where the grift is is fundamental to it, or they're people who are willing to morally capitulate. And make promises I and mean, make compromises just to stay in the sunlight of Trump, and the people who have honor and strength in leadership are just fewer and fewer. Like when you think of Mitch McConnell as somehow being a paragon of of political virtue in this world, and John Cornyn, uh, I mean they're like run of the mill politicians. Kevin, even Kevin McCarthy is like a is 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 like relatively a better bet than the than most of the republicans out there now and it's just it's a it's a moral tragedy when a party is is captured in that way and has has morally capitulated emily there was a story in the new york times on thursday morning about how the trump world is planning if they return to the white house to take control of the justice department to end it as an independent agency to do exactly what they are accusing the Biden administration of doing that. They will, uh, you know, say there's no longer an independent, independent, uh, independent attorney general and independent judicial process that the president will decide how all of that stuff goes down. That seems bad.
4: seems bad. Yeah. Also Ron DeSantis has signed on to this theory of what's called the unitary executive where all power resides in the presidency. Um, yeah, I mean, we're talking about norms and laws that are post Watergate for the most part, or at least the strongest version of them. And what's at issue here is a kind of fundamental tension. You have an attorney general who is appointed by the president, the Justice Department is part of the executive branch. But in order to do its duties and to be able to, uh, you know, in- indict very high up officials and just, um, set priorities, protect national security in a way that is separate from the White House. The Justice Department has had this independence, and we've gone back and forth as a country about what kind of special counsel or special prosecutor will we want to have, what relationship that person should have um, to the attorney general, to the courts, to Congress, in terms of their authority. And it's not as if everyone thinks that, like, the model we currently have is perfect, <laughs> but it seems to be allowing for some independence. And the idea that, you know, the attorney general tells Congress during confirmation hearings, I will be making decisions, um, I will be the last word on American law enforcement, and no, I'm not going to let the president tell me what to do when I face a sensitive situation. That's become really pretty bedrock in American law and politics. And that is what. Trump is talking about completely going by the wayside in the middle of, you know, all of his kind of like churning of grievance and rage and fury and unhappiness about what's happening to him. It's all about him. All about him.
0: John, what impact do you see so far the the Trump Michigas having on the rest of the Republican field and on how this campaign is going to play out? It feels like it's going to all the oxygen is now around this maybe it won't last. Maybe maybe there'll be regular campaigning for a bit.
1: I think all the oxygen is around this and is likely to stay there. You have the self-actualization of those who are supporting Trump or those even... I mean, Marco Rubio is a good example. He's... You've got the ranking member on the Intelligence Committee who should be a guardian and steward of you know being uh, concerned about the way in which intelligence is handled because it's his beat. And also because he was so... Um, uh, Folsom, in his condemnation of Hillary Clinton, who he said um, was her handling of, of classified information was disgraceful, unbecoming of somebody who wanted to be president, grossly negligent, damaged national security, put lives at risk and that was based on fewer facts, lesser facts um, than than what we have um, in the current moment so you when you have people rushing to hold that Hold that position, which is to say to defend President Trump, despite their past behavior, despite the position they have, it gives you some sense of how stable things are for him, despite the fact there have been more what are called charismatic dissenters, which is to say people who have defended him before who aren't defending him now, former Attorney General Bill Barr is one of them, who said, um, that if half of what is alleged is true trump is toast that there's no weaponization of the justice department you have michael ludig the the formal ju- former jurist that was once a hero in c- uh, conservative circles saying this is a legit thing mike pompeo the former secretary of state so that's more than normal but not sufficient i don't think and politically so there's this tightening around him and it freezes out other conversations on the other hand sometimes it has been possible for candidates to to do the spade work in the early caucus and primary states to create their own support. The problem is that there um, are a lot of other candidates trying to do that. So you have the split the vote problem. Um, And you, you, you know, have the fact that Donald Trump is a is a singular figure. He's not, you know. McCain could do it in New Hampshire against George W. Bush. Well, George W. Bush didn't have the holdover over the party that Donald Trump does. So the previous routes that people have taken to undercut the frontrunner are not likely to be um, uh, you know, effective in the in the current state of things.
4: You know what bothers me the most about all of this? It's just for nothing, right? I mean, yeah, he was showing off some of these documents and he was using them to settle scores, but mostly he just seems to have hung on to them, at least from what we know so far, because like... He liked having them. It was a reminder that he was president, a kind of claim that he still is legitimately president as completely false and ridiculous as that is. And um, it was so unnecessary. It wasn't for, I mean, not just like any higher purpose. It wasn't even necessary for him. It just seems like the benefit of it was so thin and speculative and, for all of that the country is like twisted into this knot we have you know huge poll numbers of people thinking this investigation and indictment is politically motivated we're having this huge test of american law enforcement like for nothing but
0: but that's what he wants he wants the chaos he wants the he wants to force people into fealty
1: it's such a it's such a great point and then you have people in positions of responsibility who should know better who when looking at this case, which is for such small beer, which is essentially either small beer or you can make an argument that these are the most sensitive documents and your stewardship um, obligation is even higher because of the basically, you know, arguably the lives that were lost collecting this information and just to use it to settle personal scores is such a difference between what the way you're supposed to use it and the way he was using it. And, and, but, but your point is still, of course, right. And secondarily, that he's not charged for the 197 documents he willfully turned over and willingly turned over. Well, not willingly, but he, that he turned over. And so it's quite obvious that had he just turned over what he had, that this essentially would have gone away entirely. And so for me, this is a window, leave the court aside for a moment. This is a window in the way a person, into the way a person who wants to be president again, behaved with the most sensitive material, and then also in facing a series of decisions, he chose his own personal self-interest over the law and over subpoenas. And he doesn't just want to be exonerated. He wants to be rewarded with four more years. And the people who know better in his party are saying, let's do that. Let's give this person the responsibility of the hardest job in the world.
0: I think it's really important for me as a citizen, as a journalist and as a human being living in the united states in 2023 to maintain my equanimity in the world and one thing i'm really going to try to do is to not uh pickle myself in this stuff and to not spend too much time thinking about it stressing about it speculating about it not because it's not important it's obviously incredibly important it's just that You know, we have duties to I I think there was a way in which the, the the politicization of everything during the past during the Trump era has been poisonous for all of us. And the more we can resist it, the better our own individual lives will be. Not that, you know, battles don't need to be fought. They do need to be fought. Not that you don't do the work. It's just like you can't spend all your days and nights stressing about this because it will make you crazy.
1: It's totally true, but you've also just um, beautifully articulated one of the ob- obligations of the presidency, which is to not pickle the country. I mean, this is all the result of Donald Trump's behavior, and he is, he is basically pickling the country, and only by the kind of courageous effort you're talking about do people keep it from having, having it overtake their lives, including his supporters. Especially his supporters.
0: Slate Plus members... Great segment coming up today. We're going to talk to Joel Anderson, who's the host of the fascinating new season of Slow Burn, Becoming Justice Thomas, about his investigation into the early life and rise of Clarence Thomas. A great new podcast series. We'll talk to Joel, who's a Slate colleague. You can become a member and hear that conversation by going to slate.com slash GapFest This episode of the GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? By visiting auraframes.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best selling frame. That's A U R A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
2: With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: Emily, what is Cop City, and is that a fair name for what it is?
4: Huh. Well, the first question's easier than the second one, because I've thought about it. Cop City is this pretty giant complex of many acres planned for an area of Atlanta that is now a forest. And the idea is that the police need a big new training complex to, to properly learn all their crime prevention and law enforcement techniques. They need like a store um, where they can practice, you know, other kinds of real world simulation. So that's why it's called a city because the idea is that you would have like a tiny artificial city in the middle of this and they would use it. And it seems like the motivation for this was that, um, you know, after the killing of George Floyd and um, a police killing in Atlanta that led the police chief to resign, that morale was low There was a sense that the police needed to be better trained, but also some sense that like they needed to be somehow enticed into uh, some notion that like they were going to have this state of the art facility and that was going to help recruit other people. I've actually never heard of a big complex like this in a city, so I'm a little confused about why Atlanta thought this was necessary, but the city leadership was behind it. And calling it cop city, I mean, it's a really good shorthand for the protesters and the demonstrators, right? It just makes it seem kind of um, weird and to me kind of fake in this way that's suspect. And it does have this like teeny city in it. So I don't know. I feel like this whole protest movement, which has been super intense in Atlanta, even though it has failed so far, if they hadn't had a really good nickname, it would have been harder for it to take off.
0: Yeah. And just, just to get into the details. So the thing, the place is called the Atlanta public safety training center and the city council of Atlanta approved it last week, uh, approved it again. I mean, it's been approved in various stages, but it got sort of a more final approval last week in an 11 to four vote. The city will spend somewhere between 30 and $70 million, depending on how things work out to build it. There'll also be private funding for it on. And, and I, I think to, to, to articulate the, arguments in favor of it a little bit more there's this they do train cops in atlanta but they train them in a more disorganized fashion that's they have facilities all over the city um it's a, it's it doesn't have a it doesn't have a sort of a as coherent a, a curriculum and a coherent a process as they'd like and it's just geographically disorganized and this is a way to centralize it and to to make it more state-of-the-art and it has had basically overwhelming not overwhelming but strong majority support from the pretty liberal Atlanta City Council throughout this process so so while there have been protests there's also at the same time the political support has been significant throughout this it has ignited these huge protests and the the protests it seems to be a mix of local and national protesters it seems to be a mix of people who are protesting on environmental ground. So that seems like kind of pretextual to me that they're going to take 85 acres of a forest to build this thing.
4: Really? That seems important to me because there isn't so much green space in any urban area. And when you take 85 acres that's currently forested in a city, that does seem like, do you really need to do that?
0: Well, you never need to do anything. Um, but can you do? Yeah. I mean, does it does taking 85 acres of forest like out of a thousand acre forest. Is that a huge deal? It seems like it doesn't seem to me. Maybe I'm all right. So anyway, there are environmental protesters who are extremely annoyed at the 85 acres that are being taken. And then there are protesters who don't like the, the way this contributes to the, the copification of the world and the military the further militarization of cops and, and the, the glorification of cops. And those two groups have kind of coalesced around this.
4: No, I don't think so. I mean, it's really been the Atlanta Solidarity Fund that has been, you know, helping to organize this. And I don't want to say that in any kind of nefarious way. Now, three of their leaders have been... um, you know charged with like RICO crimes as i think i mentioned last week and mostly and mismanagement of funds and mostly it just seems like they were running a bail fund and i feel really skeptical at least so far about this indictment based on what we know about it
1: the judge seemed to be pretty skeptical too
0: just to get into more of the history just to, to back up a little bit further th- through, throughout the political negotiations and the political jockeying over cop city There have been various protests and some of these protests have gotten violent. There were, and most dramatically earlier this year, law enforcement killed one protester. And a cop was shot and wounded. And counterclaims about whether a cop cop was shot first, who shot the cop first, whether the protesters had shot at all. Like, and we're not going to litigate that. We do not know the answer to that. And there've been other disruptive vandalizing protests, vehicles destroyed, fires set. And there've been an incredibly aggressive response by Governor Kemp and Governor Kemp's law enforcement to to arrest and and severely charge protesters, accuse them of domestic terrorism charges or file domestic terrorism charges against them. And now that has subsequently turned into this effort to charge the people who have been bailing them out as as conspiracy as part of a criminal conspiracy right yes, Emily,
4: exactly that was a good summary yeah and i think the pro the res- the crackdown on the protest which has been so harsh and extreme has fueled more of the protest and become its kind of own injustice in the view of the people who are objecting
0: don't you think john lowe that the fact that it doesn't even matter if the judge is sympathetic to the the people who've been charged that it that the purpose of charging these people who are operating the bail network is not really to convict them. I don't think I doubt the prosecutors thought they were going to convict them. It was just to make the cost of doing this bail work very, very high, both financially and emotionally. It's just disrupts their ability to help their allies. It's a, it's effective at silencing the protest and, and, and making the protest much harder to pull off. Even if the charges, don't stick
1: right and keep people from career. I mean, that that certainly uh, would be um, uh, that's that certainly seems one motivation. Just w- what we're talking about is that the the judge um, James Altman said to the prosecution. I don't find it. I don't find it real impressive. There's not a lot of meat on the bones of thousands of dollars going to illegal activities. So he's basically skeptical that they've made their case. But the, you're talking about a chilling effect, and so. So in other words, people don't um, want to create a safety net and and um, for protesters getting arrested. Um, and therefore, if there's no if there's nobody to run a bail fund, um, then maybe people won't protest as much. So can I ask, can, can both one or both of you talk a little um, there, the, the excessive muscularity of the modern police force is something that the left and the right had actually joined together on as saying this isn't so great when you give them the weapons of war and massive, um, uh, you know, Humvees, armored Humvees and all of this equipment that it creates the conditions for, um, overreactions. You know, that has a long intellectual tradition, that argument. Um, what I wonder, Emily, is why a training facility couldn't be, and I know this seems to be one of the agreements as a part of the final city council vote, um, There's promises to do this, but which is essentially, there's also the other kind of training that helps reduce violent interactions, that helps uh, reduce collateral damage, that trains cops in real world situations to um, step back rather than become excessively muscular. It's not impossible that this training facility could be used in, in those more beneficial ways.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we all benefit from well-trained police, right? No question. I think there is a deep concern about trust here, obviously. This community does not believe that this facility is going to be used in this way that is going to yield like a kinder, gentler, more restrained police
5: force.
0: But I mean, I think we're in this really interesting moment, which is that the public sentiment about police is in a really weird place right now. Certainly where I live in in DC, there is huge anxiety across the city, across uh, income levels, neighborhoods, race about crime and chaos and disorder. And the you know the DC Metro, which historically has been one of the safest, most uh, placid places you can imagine, has feels now chaotic. There are rampant carjackings in DC. Huge rise in carjackings, like random violence. And at the same time, the police. Presence in the city has gone down because they've lost so many cops who just don't want to be D.C. police officers anymore. And so there's this real like we're not where we were in 2020, where there was where everyone had or lots of us had come to the recognition that, you know, there are deep problems with how this country is policed and we need to grapple with them. And we're, we're somewhere else where people if you cannot maintain a secure, safe city, safe neighborhood, safe town uh people people will people get very upset like and certainly where i live in dc right now there's a ton of anxiety and fear and and i think people would accept a a, like a lot more militarization of the police in dc right now if it meant the city was not so freaking chaotic
4: well that's in a sense the problem i mean people's fears and concerns a completely reasonable, but the idea that like okay, well, the way to fix that is to militarize. Right, the, is, yeah, exactly. I mean, we just yeah. have a lot yeah. of counter evidence that it does not work that way, and yet it tends to be the tool that cities reach for. It's the police that's the big force. You know, when when I write about these issues, sometimes I'm just frustrated by the fact that there's no immediately recognizable word for the constellation of social services and other tactics and, you know, prevention that you would want. Like you need some word that like wraps up school, good schools and summer youth employment programs and social services and, you know, alternate Addiction 911. And, and we don't have it. And so we have the police. So then that's who gets the budget increase you, in Cubs You City. should,
1: You should coin that word. I Why should coin yeah, I that, know, word. that word. You should, or just write about that problem. Yeah.
4: Instead of just talking about it here with you guys,
1: couldn't you imagine Emily also if you were fr- if you were creating a composite so you're creating the word and then the composite parts of that word could be taken from the various jurisdictions in which they have great examples of each of one of them because, you know, um like addiction outreach or or other things that are um that reduce the chances for these kinds of interactions taking place between police and um and citizens, I, I want to read that piece. They, it's, you should, right. you, what you need is like the Denver model. It's, it's, you call it the
0: Denver model. Yeah, yeah, Denver yeah, Denver, right. Denver, Except, yeah. Everyone's got to adopt it, which reminds D- me that there is this one example in Denver. That's why it, it came to mind. Is Denver has the, a
4: good example. Where the they STAR have this, program.
0: The STAR program where they send out mental health professionals to calls that require mental health professionals instead of cops. And they've had now... I mean, last time I heard it was 4,000, I think, interactions with citizens, not a single arrest resulting from it. In previous situations, this would have resulted in thousands of arrests and and sort of situations diffused. So if you can do that in lots of different ways in lots of different c- cities, you would improve life. But that doesn't actually stop. I mean, that doesn't stop kids carjacking.
4: Well, that's why I feel like it's not just that. Like That's an important component, but actually you're talking about a lot of different ways. Basically, you need people to feel like they have an investment and a sense of possibility in their society. And in a lot of neighborhoods of high concentrations of poverty, people do not feel that way for good reasons.
1: Can I... One tiny little national political uh, point that occurred to me as I was doing the research for this, which is if, in fact, the the sitting president were as much of a captive of the super hyper woke um, defund the police forces of his party, which isn't to say that those don't exist. But um, if he were as captive of all of that, wouldn't you imagine that he would rush into the middle of this story and associate himself with the people uh, resisting cop city? I'm not saying whether Joe Biden would do that. Clearly, he's not doing it. And he's not doing it for a bunch of different reasons. But if you if you accept the frame of the opposition that says he is hyper-captive of the defund the police forces in his party, and he's not, is my point.
4: Well, and it goes beyond that. I mean, I was watching the graduation at Bard College uh, earlier this month or last month. As and one does. As one does, I knew someone who was graduating, and Senator Warnock was the speaker, and the students protested him because of his
1: position on. Cox He's City.
0: too because Senator Warnock's too right wing.
1: Yes, and it was yeah, about no, City. Mean, he, right? He says, "I think the choice." He says, "I think the choice between public safety and justice is a false choice." No, you're exactly right. This is my point. This is exactly my point, and that's the mm-hmm. way he won Georgia. By the way.
0: We have a new GabFest Reads coming out in your feed this weekend. Uh, every month, you know, we one of us reads a book and talks to the author about a book that we're fascinated by. And Emily has new GabFest Reads on Animal Liberation Now from Peter Singer, which I make, cannot wait to listen to.
4: I had such a great time talking to Peter Singer. It was totally eye-opening.
2: The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: I really admire the writer Elizabeth Gilbert. Uh, not so much for Eat, Pray, Love, which I actually have never read, so I don't know whether I would admire her for it or not. Oh, As my for her God. What magazine. lacuna
4: in your reading past? Continue okay, on.
0: Okay, maybe I'll read it. Uh, I admire her magazine reporting from the 90s. There's this essay that she wrote for GQ, uh, which I still think about. It's about somebody turning down a marriage proposal. And it's one of the most gorgeous things I've ever read. But I was pretty bummed when I heard that she was going to delay indefinitely the publication of her next novel, The Snow Forest, because of objections from people who don't like that her novel was set in Russia. Um, She posted a video. I'm going to quote her. I've received an, an enormous, massive outpouring of reactions and responses from my Ukrainian readers expressing sorrow anger, sorrow, disappointment, and pain about the fact that I would choose to release a book into the world right now. Any book, no matter what the subject of it is that is set in Russia, it is not the time for this book to be published. I, I do not want to add any harm to a group of people who have already experienced and who are continuing to experience grievous and extreme harm. So The Snow Forest, which was supposed to come out in early 24, is a novel. It's based on on, I mean, This is a totally separate issue, and I think I've chattered about this before. One of the most incredible stories that has ever been told about a uh, true story about a family of four that fled Stalin's oppression of their religious order and went deeper and deeper and deeper into Siberia and ultimately spent more than 40 years, hundreds of miles from anyone else on earth in the most forbidding, coldest wilderness on the planet until a Soviet mining crew stumbled upon them in 1978. So from the accounts that have been Told, Gilbert's novel did nothing to glorify the Russian government, glorify Russian institutions, Soviet institutions. In fact, it is extremely critical of the sort of the government at, at the time. It has nothing to do with what's happening in Russia now. It has no possible connection to this war. So it is clearly a wrong decision. I think it's obviously a wrong decision. Though it is her right to do it. She controls the book, but it's morally wrong, right, John?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I kept trying to find uh, the. Complexity. Uh, the what was wrong with my hot take, which was that this is a mistake that you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. That there's no connection between telling this story about Russians and what's going on in Ukraine. That the whole point is that this is Vladimir Putin's war, not the war of the Russian people. Although you can make the case, you know, obviously some of them support him, and it's easier to m- make the case that Russian-inspired culture. Um, Should be boycotted. Although Philip Kennecott in the Washington Post made a really smart point even about that saying that when you boycott an entire culture, you end up throwing out and this and now I'm talking about culture as produced by Russians, which is a a category different. And I don't mean to stray except just to give give this point, which is that that culture is often counterculture. Uh, And so therefore, no one Then I'm now quoting from Kennecott, he said, no one indicts Russia more acutely than Russian writers and artists. So even when I thought, okay, there's a distinction between what Gilbert did, which is I can't find a defense of, but there's a distinction between that and supporting literature from Russia, particularly state owned. Uh, but now I, even that I'm, I have t- two minds about. So I really can't, this is such a head scratcher. I worry that I'll do damage to my scalp. On the other hand, it's obvious. Like the the Goodreads gang um, trashes the book and it makes it hard for it to do well and what author wants to be attacked by the mob. But that's, that's a fault of um, modern publishing, which has this more broadly.
4: Well, and also, I mean, I'm sorry to pile on, but if there's anyone who could withstand that, it would be Elizabeth Gilbert, this enormous bestselling author. I'm not even sure I believe that it would have hurt the sales, like maybe a little bit. But, you know, hundreds of people dinging you on Goodreads who haven't even read the book.
1: Come well, that's on. what Goodreads is. Goodreads, the subtitle, they don't they don't highlight it very much. It's in a very uh, small font, but is thousands of opinions from people who haven't read the book. <laughs> it's
0: right. So it was, there were 500 odd one-star reviews of a book that isn't coming out for six months.
4: I think the other thing that really bothered me about Gilbert's reaction was her saying, like, I don't want to add to the harm of this community. She hasn't taken a poll of Ukrainians. Like, we have no yeah. idea what yeah. people in Ukraine make yeah, of this. My Ukrainian food. readers. Please. Like, yeah. these yeah. are, you know, this was became an online pile on mob and the way that mobs construct themselves. Like they may be a bunch of Americans sitting in their basements for all she knows. And the notion that this most extreme reaction is representative in some way without any evidence from anyone speaking like from some official or I, just that really, really troubled me. This just sits, sets a terrible precedent. And just to go on for one more moment, you know, this larger question about boycotts and culture It is one thing to say, okay, this particular Russian celebrity, you know, opera singer, whoever, is supporting Putin, and thus we don't want to book her, you know, going forward. I understand that. I really understand that. But the notion that, like, to just be Russian or the book is set in Russia, it has nothing to do with the actions. It is just merely the identity and the personhood or the countryhood. Like, absolutely not. That just is completely antithetical to experiencing art, culture, literature, and empathy for other people.
0: They, they, I just want to read a really good line from Frank, Frank Four wrote in the Atlantic. This really, and he made this, a smart point. The war in Ukraine is one of the great moral struggles of, our, struggles of our time because it is being waged on behalf of the liberal order. To indulge in the spirit of illiberalism in the name of Ukraine is to dis- disrespect the cause itself.
1: And he also add another one, which is perhaps it saves some of her fans from having to reconcile the fact that they might enjoy a story set in a country they despise. And the whole point of engaging with literature is to confront things that are maybe make you think. And also... It has nothing to do with the war. <laughs> but we should get to the harder cases
0: because I do think the harder cases are not. Th- this is an easy case. It's the Russian artists who wish to perform outside Russia. They're, so they're Russian Russian artists who are exiles, but who don't speak out against the war because they have family back in Russia and they don't. They want to be able to go back and visit them. Um, they're Russian artists who are currently based in Russia who wish to perform internationally and don't, you know, and want to maintain their career and also don't want to endanger their their status at home. There are Russian institutions like the Bolshoi ballet or a Russian Olympic, a Russian team that want to perform as Russian institutions. Those are all sort of slightly different cases. I mean, to me, it's pretty clear that things which where the Russia as a nation, there's a national identity to the thing itself or that are institutionally Russian should we should they should be you know, excluded from the world of civilized society because of the way that this country is behaving. I don't think Russian, there should be a Russian Olympic team. I don't think Russian athletes should be allowed to participate in the Olympics because it's intrinsically a nationalized thing. They shouldn't be allowed in the world cup. I don't think something like the Bolshoi ballet, which is an institute of an institution that is fundamentally identified with the, the, the Russian country should be allowed to perform, but individuals, it's a different case.
4: Right. I mean, the what you just named are the easy cases on the other side. And then they're the people who don't want to speak out because they feel some kind of danger slash discomfort. And that is a harder category of um, people. And I think it depends a lot on the context, right? So you know, who is asking them to do what exactly, whether you're disinviting people or just choosing other people for the moment. What did you all think about the Pan America set of facts? So that's one in which there was... um a Pan-America conference or supposed, like a festival. And there was one panel with Ukrainian writers and then a separate panel that included two Russian writers who had left the country. And Masha Gessen was supposed to moderate it. And the Ukrainians said they were going to pull out of the event because of the presence of these two Russians who'd left the country. And so then Pan-America canceled the panel with the Russians on it. And Masha said they would no longer be on the board of Pan-America. And I just found like that I was troubled by Pan-America's decision in that case because the Russians had left the country and because I trust Masha as like a, you know, presence in all of this.
0: Yeah. I mean, there is this, I guess there's this Ukrainian policy. There's a, there's a sort of a, I don't know if it's an official policy, but it's certainly an implicit policy that Ukrainians will not appear in any official platform with a Russian. And even though the pen these two, People were on different panels. The Ukrainians took that as being appearing with Russians, and therefore they wouldn't do it. I was troubled by that, too. I mean, PEN is, stands for free thought, free expression, engage of, exchange of ideas.
1: I was struck by this sentence in a piece for Slate that Imogen West Knights wrote. And, um, the sentence is, a novel shouldn't be written with the primary aim of being morally instructive. Do you guys think that's certifiably true? I think novels are written all the time with the aim of being morally instructive.
4: Well, there is an argument about whether that's a good idea or not, yeah. right? Which like, comes up a lot in talking about, you know, Dickens or in relation to Demon Copperhead, the book by Barbara Kingsolver that that I think is so good, right? This question of whether it kind of ruins a novel, if it has some larger social point that it's making, but certainly there are many novels that do that. And I think some of them thread the needle amazingly successfully. And I would put Dickens and Demon Copperhead and David Copperfield in that category. Yeah.
1: And also the voice that a writer writes with has a moral thrust behind it and presu- and the and the characters are arranged to behave in a way that sends a moral message. I mean, you, it's almost inescapable.
0: Just want a couple of, I, I want to go back to the harder cases, like the Russians who can or cannot perform or do their professions outside of russia right now i think so much of the strength of america during the cold war was that we distinguished the state from the people that we recognized and cherished the humanity of russian individuals and distinguished them from the horrible state they lived under and so there was this you know get them to get russians to love american music get them to appreciate american Jazz get them to to be aware of American writers and and appreciate individual Russians who kind of can make gestures towards us and to and that distinction between individuals and in the state they live under is incredibly important and I feel like it, it has collapsed not just in this case of Russia but in lots of like people have have people's identities have been compressed into whatever the worst aspect of their identity you can identify is and that therefore you lose that kind of individuality and so in a way i feel like there shouldn't be any one policy about how how you treat individuals every individual like you know you treat each case as its own unique case like is this a person who is representing something wonderful to humanity and stands against the values that putin represents then let's have them perform have them you know celebrate them honor them and cherish them and if then there are people who are the opposite and and those people you don't give an audience to
4: i think what's hard is trying to decide what kind of action you think the individual has to take in order to surmount the hurdle of like terrible countryhood. Right. Cause like for the most part, nobody asks Americans to like go, you know, apologize in some huge way for our country. Every time we try to perform or do anything abroad, even though like America has plenty of sins. And obviously this is the same for most countries in the world. Russia is doing something particularly terrible right now. And so for good reason, there's an onus on Russians to have some kind of stance about it.
0: I realize the thing that really troubles me. It's the idea that Ukrainians have a veto over what the rest of us should hear. I mean, Ukraine has a, they are, with the bravery of Ukrainians, what Ukraine has done in the world is extraordinary, that the fight that they're engaged in is a a morally just fight and we should support them. But the fact that a Ukrainian you know, the Ukrainian government doesn't want me to do something or listen to something or hear something. It should not It should not be dispositive. That should not be the answer. It should not be there's a Ukrainian veto over the ears of Americans because of something that Ukraine has decided on. That's I think that's where I've come down.
1: Yes. And just to make sure nobody misunderstands That that's not even the case with Elizabeth Gilbert. That that even the Ukrainian position on Russian art is not. Their position is not. You cannot write about the country of Russia in another era.
0: Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're having a a White Russian on your porch, you're not allowed to. Probably shouldn't be having a White Russian. Don't have a White Russian. What are you going to be chattering about, John Dickerson?
1: I'm going to be chattering about the fact that one of Jupiter's moons, um, Enceladus, had five of the six elements necessary to sustain life. And now researchers have found number six. So the bingo card is full, which means that it is possible that um, the ocean worlds under the layer of ice on Enceladus might um, be habitable. M- there might be life on there. But as Bill Harwood of CBS pointed out, Bill knows all things planetary and spacecraft. The whole concept of what actually life is, we have, one, we have an example of one, life on Earth. And so that's one of the fantastic things about this discovery and the future missions to go um, explore it and find the truth of it is that um, we may discover an entirely new kind of life, which is amazing. And also, I just like the um, way that this data is collected. Enceladus has these geysers that shoot out ice water and that that's how they were able to find... Um, the sixth element, by the way, was phosphorus. We haven't been able to measure and find that it has these six elements that are necessary um, for life. So book your travel plans now, kids, because um, you can uh, you could spend a package holiday at Enceladus uh, in the under, underground ocean in
0: the ice geysers.
1: Can we get Love to the an moon of
4: Jupiter? That seems so far away.
0: Yeah, not.
1: It's true. It's, it's not like going to Delaware. I'll tell you definitely that much. It's a downer here, but I don't yeah. think it's right
4: off of I ninety five.
1: Dewey Beach is, uh, although given what happened to I ninety five, it might Seriously. take you longer to get uh, through ninety five than <laughs> the moons of Jupiter.
0: <laughs> Emily, what's your chatter? That was a that was a great that was a great northeast corridor little reference there, John. Well played.
4: Yep. I have two nonfiction recommendations for this summer. Um, one is The Forgotten Girls by Monica Potts. It's um, a book about Monica's um, hometown in Arkansas, told through her friendship with um, one particular girl who was she was very close with growing up. And Monica's trying to understand what happens to young women in deeply rural conservative communities through this Friends experience. It's just a really... Excellent, sensitive portrayal of um, Southern, rural, growing up. Really good book. And then the second book is coming out in July. It's called When Crack Was King. It's by Donovan Ramsey. And it's um, about the crack epidemic in the 80s and 90s, which, you know, since that's my growing up time and I grew up in Philadelphia and then moved to New Haven, two cities hard hit by crack. I think that Donovan's right that there hasn't been enough attention to this particular Facet of um you know what we now think of as all the punishment of mass incarceration, but also just the incredible damage that drug did. and he tells the story through some really memorable, unlikely characters. So The Forgotten Girls by Monica Potts and when Crack was King by Donovan Ramsey.
0: My chatter much jollier. I started watching a fantastic TV show.
4: Oh, good. Night. I need a TV show.
0: It's called Muster Dogs. It's an Australian show, and it's about uh, five uh, Kelpie puppies, Kelpie Kelpie's a kind of uh, Australian working dog that are being trained to become muster dogs. They t- herd cattle, herd cattle and livestock in Australia. And it's just following these five dogs, each of whom is sent to a farm in a different remote part of Australia, which is a very big country and very remote. Um, and the dogs are unbelievably cute, and the owners are unbelievably charming, and it, the the footage is so beautiful and it's just i it's it's pure delight and also everyone speaks with australian accents and who could object to that so check it out muster dogs on netflix <laughs> listeners you've got chatters for us and our chatter this week which was sent to us by email at gafestslate.com or maybe it was tweeted to us at atslategafest comes from phil
5: from cape cod Hey there, GapFest gang. This is Phil from Cape Cod. This weekend, I'll be chattering about Jay Caspian Kang's recent piece in The New Yorker, Notes on Losing. Nearly every time I play tennis, I meltdown spectacularly. Why do I keep coming back for more? In it, Kang reflects on a tennis match he lost to a spry, older gentleman, describing the internal battle he wages with himself every time he plays and recounting how many tennis luminaries have overcome these challenges to achieve a mastery of the sport, which still eludes him. As someone who's played tennis all my life, I was particularly struck by his explanation of how some players can win simply by grinding and paying attention to the most unglamorous parts of the game. A tennis coach once told me that matches are won and lost on one square foot of real estate, as he pointed to his head. Much like Kang, I have always been drawn to this challenge against myself, even as my intramural sparring partner sometimes gets the better of me.
4: I loved Jay's piece and in keeping with, um, Phil's chatter, Jay recommends this book called winning ugly, I think by Brad Gilbert. And I, now this is reminding me that I got to go order it to try to save myself from all of my unnecessary losses on the tennis court,
1: which, which raises another question to me, which is you have this, the dominance in men's tennis of basically three players, Um, and what, is there some fascinating or interesting thing to say about the commonalities between their brains, given the role that the brain plays? Do they all have the same, while their styles might be different, do they all have the same brain wiring that has allowed them to succeed because it is such a mental game?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. I was, I mean, Novak Djokovic last weekend winning the French Open, he raised his level in the final tiebreaker to this insane degree. And you just think, like, what does it take to be able to play your freest, loosest, most amazing shots in the moment when everything's on the line and most people, particularly me, freeze up? It's just, I just, yeah, what is happening in that guy's brain? You know what I was thinking of is that famous free climber um, whose name isn't in my head. Yes, like wh- there must be just something that happens in their heads that's just like different from other human beings.
0: That is our show for today. The Gatfest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is senior director for podcast operations, and Alicia Montgomery is the VP of audio for Slate. Please. Email us at gabfest at slate.com with your chatter. and Please join us on June 28th in Washington, D.C. for a live show or also a live stream of that show. If you can't make it to D.C., there's also a live stream for Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson. of am David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Slow Burn, Becoming Justice Thomas, recently debuted on the Slate Podcast Network, SPN. Hosted by Slate's Joel Anderson, the four-part series traces the pre-Supreme Court life of Clarence Thomas from his childhood in Georgia to his years at Holy Cross and Yale Law School to his staff lawyering for a chemical company and a Missouri senator to the EEOC. Um, Joel Anderson of Slate joins us. Joel, congratulations on Slowburn. It's fascinating. Thanks for having me on. What do you think that Americans are? broadly, or even you, not know about Clarence Thomas, not see about Clarence Thomas that you now know and see after having spent all this time with him for months?
3: That's an interesting question. I guess probably there are a lot of, you know, biographical tidbits that are sort of surprising, you know, the wanting to be a priest, um, the, you know, the flirtation with left-wing politics when he was in college, you know, that sort of stuff. But I think for me, just, just personally, and, and it kind of starts with me going to his mother's home, I kind of didn't realize how rooted in the black community he was. I think growing up, there was this sort of this assumption that um, he was a creation of white institutions, you know, from Catholic schools, you know, Yale Law and the Republican Party, right? Uh, the, you know, the Reagan administration. But no, that's not actually it. Um, he gets into his conservatism through black conservatives. and um and, you know, when you go home and you talk to the people, I mean, all these people, you know, down in Savannah, Georgia and Pinpoint, Georgia, which is the little community that he's originally from, you know, these people felt connected to him, even if they don't necessarily agree with him politically. And that that was just something different for me to, to sort of grapple with. I, I I just had no idea that this is a person that had grown up around Black people, liked being around them, um, and still sort of sees himself as, as part of that community in spite of you know, what, the way a lot of people feel about him today.
0: That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today.
1: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW group. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.